Today's scripture reading is verses from Proverbs 4, 16, 19, and 21. Listen, my son, accept my word, and you will live many years. I am teaching you the way of wisdom. I am guiding you on straight paths. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the heart, by the Lord. <laughs> Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You remain, seating, remain standing. Uh, and <laughs> before, it's already going to be a rough one, I can tell. <laughs> Before, you, uh, before we pray, I just want to say two things to those who are listening through podcasts. One is that for this particular talk, you're going to want to download the slides that are on our website, on our teaching page. It's pretty involved. There's some graphics that are there that are going to be helpful for you who are listening. Secondly, if you are listening via podcast, just a quick reminder that there's a dynamic that happens when the church gathers together corporately. And so the talk is only a portion of the liturgy that's actually shaping us and reshaping us. And everybody here said, that's right. So um, we just want to say that if you're listening via podcast, uh, you're actually not getting the full Monty. Um, so, but we love you and appreciate you anyways. <laughs> so I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us. Thank you, Lord, that you walk in the midst of your people. You search our hearts and our thoughts and our motives, and you are drawing us in loving kindness to you today. And we're here not because we thought it's a good idea that we should go and try to be, you know, holy people. We're here because you're the one who's initiating a work in us by your Holy Spirit, a work of intimacy and love. And we say yes to you, Lord. I'm so, I'm so honored and humbled by the ability, opportunity to serve your people in this way. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that in no way would I be in the way of what you want to say to your beloved here this morning. And we ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If we can get the clock counting upwards, that'd be great as well. So... Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet already, my name is Al. I have the privilege most Sundays of sharing from Scripture. We're working through Proverbs in a series titled Wisdom's Guide to the Good Life, as Nia mentioned. And I have to be honest with you, as we talk today about wisdom in decision-making and God's will, I have to say that indecision was an issue for a good portion of my life. And I think it began when I started reading those cursed choose-your-own-adventure books as a kid. I don't know if you, any, anybody remember these books. Um, they were the only books that I read as a kid, basically. That and some maybe Sports Illustrated. And they wrecked my decision game at an early age. 
Um, do you know the first principle to transformation is taking 100% responsibility for your life? I'm choosing to blame it on Choose Your Adventure books in this case. And you could make choices through these books that would lead you through these different places. Like it would say, you're being chased by rabid wolves and you've come to a hidden cave. Do you want to go in? If so, turn to page 210. If not, turn to page 130. And I would gingerly turn to page 210 to go into the cave. And when I turned in, wah, wah, sorry. <laughs> it wasn't the cave after all. It was the side of a, a volcano. You plunge 500 feet down to a melting lava to your death. And I'm like, no, not again. I'm terrible at decisions. For many of us, finding the will of God, that was a terrible, I'm, gonna, I'm never going to use that illustration again. <laughs> finding the will of God seems like that to us, doesn't it? You got two doors. You can go in one door and find peace and prosperity, or you turn to page 210 and you lead to doom and destruction. We're oftentimes unsure which one we should take. Should I take this job, or should I go to that grad school, or should I date that person? Should I move there? How do I know what God wants? How do I know how to make a wise decision that's aligned with God's will? And modernity has not made things easier for us as decision makers, has it? We have so many more options than our ancestors did. But all these options don't make our decisions any easier. It's what sociologists call the paradox of choice or choice overload. Essentially, we now have so many options in front of us that we don't always know which one decision to make. And so for a long time, making decisions, as I said, was not easy for me. And if you were to ask me why, they were so difficult, I probably would have said something like, well, I just don't want to make the wrong turn. Or I want to do what God wants me to do. So my answers would have probably sounded really noble, maybe even holy. But underneath the soil of my indecision were roots of false security, idolatry, and passivity. False security, root number one, was essentially being able to completely control the outcome. I fall into this sense of security by not really trusting that God is working all things together for my good. Not really believing that. Like believing it intellectually, but not leaning on it with my whole body. Or that God will take care of me or my family. So I need God to tell me something directly before I do it. Because I doubt if God is really interested in my life working out as much as I am interested in my life working out. So I think, here's this chance. I could really mess my life up. I went through a lot of this when our family was praying to move to Boston in 2011 to plant a church from California. I could really ruin my children's lives. I was plagued by this sense of false security. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. You think, I'm just afraid of doing the wrong thing. What if I'm supposed to go into ministry, but I chose med school? What if I was supposed to go move to this other state, and that's where I would meet my soulmate, but instead I stayed, and therefore, ah, oh, I fell off the cliff, and I didn't make it, wah, wah. The second route wasn't just false security, it's also idolatry. This is where it gets a little bit more interesting. Idolatry is essentially trusting in someone or something for my significance, for my safety, 
for my identity. I want the security of knowing what the future will bring rather than risk trusting God as the unknown future gradually unfolds before me. Why? Because behind a lot of my stress over the will of God is this idolatrous idea that I need the perfect life. That I need the perfect situation, the perfect marriage, the lucrative career. Surely God doesn't want me to suffer. And if I make the wrong decision, I could, I could really mess things up. So making the right decision, God's will, in other words, then becomes more like throwing darts at a bullseye. It looks a lot like this on the screen. Right in the dead center is God's blessing. And if I really thread the needle, man, that's where I can end up. But if I mess up, oh, God's disappointed with me. Or, even worse, further out of the circle, he'll be mad at me. Root number three, the third root beneath my, beneath my indecision, is sometimes passivity. And in the church, Christians can tend to live in this realm as well. Passivity is essentially using God's will as an excuse for inactivity. We don't really want to put the effort or the discipline into growing in wisdom or taking risk, as it might seem like risk, but, you know, like my friend Fred says, you spelt faith, R-I-S-K, a lot of times. Bless you. We don't really want to put the effort into growing in discipline or growing in wisdom. We'd rather just shake the eight ball and say, is it A, B, or C? Yes, it's A. Perfect. But what happens when there's not a clear A, B, or C? What happens when God's will seems more like this? Look at this graphic. So you look at your future and you're like, oh my goodness, I could take steps one, two, or three, but beyond steps one, two, or three are infinite choices. And we're overwhelmed and plagued by the opportunity or the possibility of what could go wrong if I choose poorly. And then, next graphic, this is where we end up. You are here. But, oh my gosh, I chose poorly. It should have been page 211, and now I'm ended up here, and I should have been here. <laughs> and I want to submit to you that this is a wrong picture of what God's will looks like. We're left when we have these ideas of pursuing God's will or making decisions as disciples of Jesus. We're left to approach our decisions with signs, feelings, or a holy flip. I'll tell you what that is in a second. Certainly, God has worked in my life through signs. I can't tell you how many times I've left fleeces out and said, Okay, God, if X happens then why must be true. Or some of you are like, okay, today's the day. I can feel I'm going to meet the one. Okay, yellow's my favorite color, God. And if he's wearing that yellow shirt, <laughs> game on. <laughs> Certainly God works through signs, but that is the, uh, that's, that's the exception, not the rule. 
we sometimes rely on feelings. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, do you have a peace about it? As long as you have a peace about it. And let me say this. Jonah ran directly 100% opposite of the direction that God was sending him. And when he did that, he happened to have an open door. He went to the, he went to the ticket master and he bought a ticket for the ship going the opposite direction of where God was telling him to go or where he knew that he was supposed to go. And guess what? Open door. It was right there. And did he have a piece about it? He sure did because when he was on the boat, it said he went down into the hole of the ship and he went down into the bunker, down into the barrack, and he fell soundly asleep with perfect peace. Can you always rely on your feelings or your perfect peace? Apparently not. Eve, when she bit of the apple in the garden, it said it was pleasant to the taste. Maybe you rely on a holy flip, or I call it Bible roulette. Um, Sometimes this works, man. Oftentimes it doesn't. You flip to the one page in Scripture. There it is. Lastly, we talk about open doors, which we mentioned about Jonah. And don't get me wrong, there are times that God may use these means of decision-making. Does God use these methods? God's supernatural. He could, certainly. But I believe that they're also the exception, not the rule. So then what is the rule? You apply wisdom. As a disciple of Jesus, you're learning how to apply wisdom. And wisdom is simply knowledge applied. It's knowing the right paths when you're facing the puzzles of life. It's becoming proficient in choosing right paths when you're facing the puzzles of life. That's what we've been saying throughout this series. Wisdom is saying, I want you to seek me daily, treasure me, desire me more than gold or silver or a college education or a graduate degree or this lucrative job. It's foolish not to. In fact, by asking for signs and open doors and the holy flip, I just want to say this. It's possible that we're trying to circumvent something very valuable in our life with God, and that is character development. So when it comes to decision-making and the will of God, I can't give you a formula. But I can give you a phrase. And here's the phrase. Your plans matter, but the person you're becoming matters even more. Your plans matter. And that's what I want to start with first. Your decisions actually might seem like that point. Your plans matter. It might seem like a moot point, but it actually addresses a theological paradox in the verses that we read. In chapter 16, it says, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways, they seem pure to them, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish what? Your plans. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Verse 21 of chapter 19, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And verse 21, this is actually 21, 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, 
but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Notice how many times in these verses the word plans or decisions are mentioned. Solomon says, wise people make plans. It's not unspiritual to plan. Wise people make plans. Now, Proverbs repeatedly warns against impulsive haste and encourages forward thinking, careful planning as part of making wise decisions. 21 verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Humans have a responsibility to plan wisely when it comes to decisions. And yet, each verse that we read is also balanced with not just human responsibility, but God's sovereignty. The Lord establishes your steps. The Lord's purpose prevails. So then that leads us to ask the question, so do my plans even matter? If God is sovereign, do my plans matter? And according to Scripture, your plans matter. And they matter to God. Our life direction is a combination of God's sovereignty and your responsibility. Modern people tend to reason that either God is in charge of history, working everything according to his plan, or we have freedom of choice. But the Bible says both are true at the same time. One author says, the plans of the heart belong to us. They are our responsibility. The way God controls history does not force us to act. Yet, all we do... Every one of our steps is part of his plan. It seems like a paradox. It seems impossible to fully digest, but is intensely practical. It gives you enormous incentive to take personal initiative since poor choices will create pain and big problems. Good planning means discerning all possible options and weighing the the strongest and the weakest of each And even the triune God accomplishes our salvation, according to Scripture, through careful planning in Galatians 4. Your plans matter. Mostly. (laughs) Why mostly? Because they also tell us that if you fail, you need to remember that you truly, as a disciple of Jesus, cannot mess up your life. God will weave even your failings into his plan for you. Look at Peter. Look at the many people that are in the lineage of Jesus even. God will weave even your failings as part of his overall plan for your life. And yet, your plans matter. It's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount adds, we must therefore not worry about Everything else that everybody else worries about, we can't control our future. It's in your Father's hands, and he cares for you more than many sparrows. Do you believe that? No, do you believe that? Is your life showing that? If you don't believe it, simply tell your Father in heaven that right now. Your plans matter. Secondly, but, who you, but the person you're becoming matters even more, right? We've been saying that wisdom is proficiency at choosing the right paths in the puzzles of life. And you can hear that path metaphor six times in chapter 4, the verses that we read earlier, when he says, I'm teaching you the way of wisdom, I'm guiding you on straight paths. 
Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Last week we said that wisdom is more like walking in a pathway than it is walking through a doorway. A doorway implies instant arrival, right? We want to know, is it this door or that door? Because if I walk through this door, then I arrived and my life is good. But if I walk in a pathway, that involves slow, step-by-step journeying and pitfalls that I can't perceive happening when I began this journey. A lot of us have been taught to seek the will of God like it's a doorway. We come on a decision and we think, which one's God's will? Is it A, B, or C? But that's not really how the Bible teaches you to think about God's will. God's will is more like walking on a path. Lifestyle choices, patterns of behavior, ways of thinking, things that you begin to love. And then when you're doing that, when you're walking that path, abiding in Jesus, walking hand in hand with him, you will be doing the will of God. Notice I said, you will already be doing the will of God. Making wise decisions is no different. It's less like choose your own adventure and more about the character you're developing on that adventure. That was so good, I'm going to say it twice. It's less like choosing your adventure and more like the character you're developing while you're on the adventure. In fact, the New Testament never tells you to seek the will of God. Instead, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and do the will of God. So I'm going to tell you God's will for your life right now. And mine. It's the same as mine. One, God wants you to live in humility and justice. Proverbs 21.3, to do right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than your sacrifice. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God wants me to live holy, happy lives of purity, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growing in Christ's likeness, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. If you want to know what that is, read your Bible that each of you should know how to possess his or her own vessel in sanctification and honor. Also, part of God's will, God wants you to live in gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5. In everything give thanks, for this is what? The will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That you're growing in gratitude, you're growing in purity, you're growing in justice and humility, and also you're growing in the influence of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is foolish living, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not real. His point is not about alcohol. His point is about anything that's taking away from you being fully under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What we tend to do is focus on the unknown of the future instead of focusing on what we do know in the present. 
We're actually focusing on the wrong thing when we're consumed with the future rather than obeying the Father in the present. My friend says, what if the reason the Bible is so silent about God's will for tomorrow and so clear on God's will for today is because the way that we do God's will today has a way of shaping our tomorrow? It's like this. If my daughters come to me and they say, um, you know, three daughters, 13, 11, and 8, and they come to me and they say, Dad, Father's Day is just around the corner like four months away. What do you want? I want more than anything to do what you want. I really want to please you on that day. What do you want? What's your heart desire? What's the right thing to get for you? What's going to please you? And I'm like, baby, that's great. I'm so touched that you want to please me and, and bless me on Father's Day, which is forever from now. But here's what I really want you to do. I want you to make your bed. Because that's what you know to do. I told you to do that yesterday. And today's no different, man. Get on it. <laughs> what if the reason the Bible's so silent about God's will for tomorrow and so clear on God's will for today is because the way that you do God's will today has a way of shaping your tomorrow? Jerry Sitzer is an author and a pastor. And at midlife, he lost his wife. She died. And he was finishing grad school, and he was unsure whether he should go into medicine or into ministry. Both would be partnering in God's mission field. But he was unsure. And he said this in his book, The Will of God as a Way of Life. This is an insanely important quote. He says, we think long and hard when we choose a college, a job, a career, or a spouse. And this makes good sense considering how consequential these choices are. But we give little thought to how much TV we watch or how often we're on our phone or how seldom we praise our children. Yet the little choices we make every day often have a cumulative effect far exceeding the significance of the big choices we occasionally have to make. We do not need to fret when we have big decisions about the future, worrying about the terrifying possibility that we might miss God's will for our life. We simply need to do what we already know in the present. God has been clear where clarity is most needed. The choices we make every day to love a spouse after an argument, to treat an unkind coworker with respect, to serve food at a soup kitchen, Determine whether or not we're doing the will of God. If we have a problem, it's not a lack of knowledge. Rather, it's our unwillingness to respond to the knowledge that we have. What is he saying? He's saying as we grow in Christ-like character, God allows many possible pathways to live out his will. The pathway becomes very open. He's saying so much of life is filled with decisions that we're unsure about. Should I marry this person, go to this school, move to this city, take this career path, buy this house, etc.? So, by doing what we know to do already, today, doing the will of God and seeking the kingdom of God, how then do we make wise decisions that align with the will of God? I want to show you this slide here. Obviously, you see it. 
When we're seeking, oh my gosh, I have all these choices in front of me. Which is the perfect one? Which is the one? God's like, there's a lot of them. When you're seeking my kingdom first and doing my will that's in front of you, there's a lot of potential possibilities. Don't get me wrong. There are times and there have been times in my life where there was a partic- I sensed there was a particular way to do something, to go somewhere, someone to talk to. But I have to say, largely, life is about applying wisdom. And that's what Solomon in the Proverbs is trying to explain to us. Much of the time, when we're trying to leave it up to these esoteric ideas, it's really because I'm either giving way to passivity idolatry, or um, a self, a a wrong form of, of confidence, trying to control the outcome, rather than trusting God's sovereignty. So in this graphic that you see here, you, what you want to avoid is, is it sinful? Is this choice stupid? If it's neither of those things, then the option could be plentiful, whether you go to this college or that one. And probably even if you marry this person or that one as well. Because it comes down to, are you wisely assessing this person's character? Are you wisely assessing where the two of you align in the most important parts of your life, which is faith and hope and love? Are you wisely uh, asking questions about this job or that job, asking, well, do my values what I value in life align with this particular organization or that one? Will this school help me achieve my ultimate goal or what I feel called to in life, my life's purpose, or not? And when you're asking questions of wisdom, you're doing that in a way that's helping you stay out of what's sinful and stupid. In terms of what's sinful, you can find that by reading your Bible. It's explained in Scripture the word hokama or wisdom in the, in the in wisdom literature in the Proverbs is simply, does it go along the grain of God's created order for humanity and for me? You can ask the question, in light of God's goal for the world and his good for my life, what's the wise thing to do here? You can ask the question, is it stupid or foolish by saying, does this align with my abiding in Jesus? You ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. You're seeking wise counsel from mature believers who are skilled in Scripture and how to apply it, and you're weighing out all the options. If you're doing none of those things, it's stupid. And graphic seven, or the next graphic, is this. And when you do that, you're actually entering into many of God's blessable places. We usually want to know, what's the one option for me, God? And the truth is, there might not be the one. Usually, often, there's many options. It could be the exception that there is a one, but there are many options. Do you know how I know that my wife is the one for me? Because I married her. It's a done deal, man. 
We made a promise before God at the altar. Guess what? She's the one. Could there have been other ones? I think there could have been. We have choices to make in life, and we often want the slam dunk because we want to escape the hard work of character development and actually doing the work and investigative action asking what's the wise thing to do. Think of Adam and Eve. They're planning this romantic dinner in the garden. They're like trying to celebrate one week in the garden together. And they ask God, which tree can we eat from God? And God's like, any tree. And they're like, yeah, I know you said any tree, but like, what's the perfect one? We want the one. And God's like, any, just not that one. And they're like, "Mm, yeah, I think we're going to go for that one, actually. (laughs) Any of them are my perfect will, God says. I've blessed them all. And you know what? That's freeing. It's freeing because God's saying, as you rule out the stupid decision and the sinful decision, there might be several options here. That's my will for you. I'm with you on this path. So instead of thinking that there's one target, one bullseye, or even maybe one pathway, and if I don't choose that, I'll be miserable, we begin to realize that God has several blessable places as we're abiding in Jesus, filled with the Spirit, walking in community with others, receiving counsel from those who are wise in Scripture and in life, and we're trying to do what's wise according to God's good plan for the world and for us. Now, We know enough for today to show grace and compassion to those who have wronged us. We know enough for today to give our worries to God, to repent of our fear. We know enough for today to conduct our relationships with honesty and love and wisdom. We know enough for today to do God's will. All the rest leaves room for us to trust God as we actively make decisions. And I want to talk a little bit about suffering. Because when I use the word blessable places, you might think something incorrectly. I want to be careful with that, play, that phrase, blessable places, because what comes to mind when you think about blessable places might be the same as what comes to mind for me. When I think about that, I think of comfort. I think of ease. I think of the best Instagram posts ever. And chances are, in your life, at some point, you will be doing the will of God and you could be hating your life. You could be thinking, I missed God's will. Is that true? Have you missed the path? Proverbs 16 says, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Look, there have been times in my life that I've chosen paths that I thought were right when I didn't listen to wise counsel. And I pursued the path only to discover that I really chose it based on ego. Um, Parker Palmer wrote a book. It's an incredible little book called Let Your Life Speak. And he tells this story about being offered the role of a president as a president of a university. He actually really loved his job as a professor where he was, but as he was offered this role as a president at a university, it was really really attractive to him. It was a sexy role. And so he asked his friends to come over to his house so he could listen to their wisdom, and he just asked them to be a clearness committee. In other words, 
Just ask me hard questions. I'm not ready for advice yet. I just want you to ask me hard questions about why I'm doing this. And they sat there for like three hours and question after question uh, came to him. And ultimately, what he realized was, do you know why I really want, I, don't, I love where I'm at right now. And I actually don't want to be a president of a university. My skills and my, my aptitude doesn't align to that role. Man, I sure love the sound of having my own parking spot. And I sure love the sound of having the corner office and the bigger paycheck. And I sure love the sound of being written up about in the, in the local newspaper and the respect that would come with me with that. And he chose to forego the sexy position as university professor and stay where he was because he realized it seemed right to him initially. But as he sat with those who were wise in their faith, he realized this is a decision based on ego. In those moments, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. Am I abiding in Jesus? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I growing in repentance and faith? Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I seeking wise counsel from other mature believers? And... While it's true, maybe you missed one aspect of the path because of stupidity or because of sin, here's the good news. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. His arms are open wide. And just like that, you're back on the path. That's how we live our lives under the canopy of God's forgiving grace, isn't it not? But there will also be times that you're seeking God's kingdom and you're doing the revealed will of God, but you don't feel like you're in a blessable place because it hurts. You're going through incredible suffering and you're thinking, how did I get on this path and how in the heck do I get off of it? And this is the paradox of suffering. Because the reason suffering is a paradox in our discipleship is because it doesn't follow any forms of rationale or clear patterns. It's a paradox because sometimes you learn God's will through suffering. It says of Jesus, the most powerful human to ever live in this world, the God-man, it said through suffering he actually learned obedience to his father. And Jesus told his disciples, a disciple is not above his master. Remember our series on Joseph several, maybe two years ago? I just read it this past week. Joseph's story is a perfect example. He did what he knew to do, what was in front of him. He never gave in to sin or stupidity, and yet he faces tremendous suffering. His brothers sell him into slavery, and then he ascends, when he's in slavery, to the uh, high officiating rank of Potiphar's servant. But Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him, and he says, I can't do this thing and sin against God. I, can't, I have to do what's in front of me, what's right in front of me. So he runs, leaves his coat there. She claims that he raped her. As a result, he's thrown into prison. He continues to do God's revealed will. He suffers even more. People forget about him. For two years, he's there. And guess what it says over and over? The Lord was with Joseph, and yet he's suffering. But when you get to the end of the story, God reveals his will. At the very end, his brothers are weeping, and they're telling him, we're so sorry, Joseph, that we did this to you. And Joseph turns to them, forgives them, and he says, what you did for evil, God used for good. 
In other words, I would never have chosen this path. It's been so hard, but through this path, God has used my life to bring incredible healing and hope into the world. And he's actually revealed a path of life to me that I wouldn't have chosen, but it's been incredibly fruitful. Maybe you're there right now. I don't know how God is working things out in your life. There may be evil things that have been done for you, and that's not God's will for you. God's will originally for you was not evil or sorrow, and yet he will use evil or sorrow that is done to you, and it will actually shape your character to be a person of incredible strength and fortitude. It's a paradox that's similar to the cross. The cross is both the worst and the best day in history. It's what theologians call concurrence. It occurred at the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was foreordained, absolutely certain, yet all the people who killed Jesus were totally responsible for their own actions and choices. People like you and me killed Jesus. It was the lowest point in human history, but also the greatest point in human history. And it's a mystery that I don't understand. And yet, because of all that, through faith in Jesus, I'm now united with Jesus. I'm united to the one who has become wisdom for me and righteousness and sanctification, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus now. Your life is hidden in Jesus as a follower of him who's put your faith in him. He's become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Listen, if you survey Proverbs for methods discerning God's will, you'll conclude that the book does not talk about how God guides as much as whom guides. Modern people want a form of magic, and that's a lot of times really why we turn to signs and feelings and open doors and the holy flip to determine the right decision from God. That's the way that you guide an infant. When my children were very little, I, I controlled every part of their life, including what they ate. And now my oldest is at this stage where she's asking, hey, can I go here or can I go there? And I have to say, sweetie, in the end, what's the wise thing to do? I'm going to leave that decision up to you because I love you and my goal for you is to become a mature woman who's one of wisdom. Tim Keller says, through a long path and a lot of, a lot of work, we develop integrity and righteousness. After getting advice from others, Choose the best course in light of one, any relevant biblical texts, the opinion of authorities in family, church, and state, your conscience, an examination of your motives, the best use of your gifts and abilities in God's service, and finally, an assessment of your decision's impact on others. Look at each factor and choose well. It's through these character traits that God guides us. I want you to be honest with yourself. Are there any of those that we just read through that are missing in your decision-making. Here's what I've learned in my course to overcome indecision. It's often a form of misplaced trust. Decisiveness, I've also learned, grows with every decision that I make. And the more that you make wise decisions, the more wise you become. 
because your decisions matter, but the person you're becoming matters more. Thank you, Jesus, for your words to us, these words of wisdom.